Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jeff Greenfield was a familiar face to a generation of television news watchers as one of America's preeminent political journalists. Uh, He uh, also was a witness to a great deal of history as a young aide to Robert Kennedy in those fateful months leading up to his assassination in 1968. Uh, and as an aide to John Lindsay, a major figure in American politics as mayor of New York during that period as well. Jeff's the author or or co-author of 13 books, and his great insights into the process of electing American presidents is something that he's shared with students at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics this spring as a visiting fellow. I got a chance to sit down with him the other day to talk about Bobby Kennedy, his career in journalism, and this very, very interesting presidential race we've got going right now. Jeff Greenfield, I think you and I uh, have lived somewhat parallel lives. Uh, We both grew up in New York City, and uh, we both were ridiculously young political junkies. I know what got me going, and I've talked about it, which was JFK coming to Stuyvesant Town, where mm-hmm. I grew up. How'd you get, how'd you get going? Uh, it really was because I couldn't listen to baseball. Uh, it's the summer of 1952. I'm in my grandfather's house with my mom. No TV, but radio. And the Yankees were always on in the daytime. And one day my mom said, we're not listening to the Yankees, can't. I'm listening to the convention, the 1952 convention. I said, what, what, I'm nine years old. It turned out to be this amazing knockdown, drag out fight, the kind that people hoped they would see this year between the Taft and Eisenhower forces about credentials and people yelling at each other. And I had no idea the substance of it, but this seemed cool to me. and so by the time the Democratic convention happened, you know, I, I was put to sleep early, and I said, you got to hmm. wake me up and tell me who won. And that was that. I just was hooked from the beginning, which parallels a lot of people I know who kind of had a simultaneous interest in baseball and politics. Yeah, no that idea, was me. Okay, I have no idea what the connection is, but it, you know, I just know so many people, Joe Klein is one of them, they go on and on and on. Uh, whatever it is, uh, by the time the the next presidential year rolled around, I you know I had to follow this thing on television. I just thought the whole thing was so fascinating. Because that wasn't much of a presidential year, fifty six, right? Yeah. Ike running for reelection. It was, one of, the, with it was one of the duller campaigns you would go, but but it didn't matter. But not to you. No, I I can I will tell you I remember uh, listening to the fifty six Republican convention when 
Some delegate wanted to nominate Joe Smith as the symbol of the open convention. And the chairman said, you take your Joe Smith and get out of here. That's the only memorable event (laughs) from the entire 1956 (laughs) campaign. But somehow it is stuck in this garbage pail of a mind I have. Yeah. What, um, so, so how did this advance in your, uh, uh, other than um, random listenings to conventions? Um, did you do stuff? Did you do stuff in political know, I, campaigns? I remember stuffing. Yeah, I remember stuffing. On, I'll tell you what I remember. I was stuffing envelopes for Stevenson in, in 1956. But here's, I mean, only in New York. Okay, the local Democratic machine uh, in, in uh, Manhattan. The reformers hadn't yet. Right, won. Tammany Hall. Yeah, uh, they were downplaying Stevenson. They put up bump, put up billboards that diminished him. And I remember hearing a, a street corner Democrat talking. We had street corner events then, still do in that neighborhood. And I'm 13. I went up and said, why aren't you featuring Adlai Stevenson? <laughs> <laughs> Yelling at him from the, from the sidewalk. What's the matter? We have got the congressman here. What about the candidate for president? And you were beaten to within an inch of your life. Now, this was the Upper West Side, so they just yelled a lot. If it had been <laughs> Little Italy, if it had been other neighborhoods, maybe. But it wasn't physical. But it was like, go away, kid. You're making a fool out of yourself. And I said, fool out of myself. Where's the Stevenson name? Look at that billboard. That, that that was the highlight of my political career. Uh, really, I didn't get that involved um, in terms of participating, in terms of – except that, you know, in college I was editing on my college paper and I, I felt uh, – At uh, the Wisconsin. University of Wisconsin. And I felt arrogant enough to write, you know, about bigger stuff than the food in the cafeteria. Um, and what really happened was, you know, in law school um, – at a law school, I, I managed to wind up on in the Senate office of Robert Kennedy as kind of a one-year legislative aide. Back back up for a second, because okay. I want the Kennedy thing is something yeah. I want to sure. explore. Uh, what what made you decide to become a, a college journalist? Did you did you connect politics with news? I mean, yeah. that's sort of what got me into journalism. Yeah. Look, I I should go back and 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 fill in the blanks. I remember my mother watching the Army McCarthy hearings while she was ironing in 1954. Um, and I, I, mean, I watched Joseph Welch and McCarthy's career. I remember that. Um, I was fascinated by how journalists covered politics. I would watch that stuff. I'd watch conventions. I'd, I'd, yeah, it was a vital know, time. Yeah. I remember gathering for the first Nixon-Kennedy debate, you know, which was something like the Martians had landed. Remember, we'd never seen that before. And how exciting that was, um, and it was also you know I was on the march on Washington. I mean I was I went to participate, but I also wrote about it for the hometown Madison, Wisconsin newspaper, and so the whole idea of being engaged in in events like that uh, just always appealed to me. It's funny my my mother once said to me, and she was the more politically I think engaged one. Uh, she gave me the making of the president in 1960 as a book, and she said. You know, you're never going to be able to get to be president, you know, because you're Jewish or whatever. Uh, but you know, you could be somebody who could work for a president. Hmm. So there was something that was going on that this intersection of writing and journalism and politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I knew I wanted to write from the time I was conscious. It was never anything else. I really. I mean, once Centerfield for the New York Yankees sort of, you know, went by the wayside. Which is what about when you were five or six? Yeah, about or, that. The, yeah, you know, yeah. and, or you know, or playing rock guitar with a great band because talent really matters. <laughs> yeah, you know, they can tell. I just knew it was going to be writing of some kind, and then somehow public policy and politics was part of it. You know, 
Um, so you you took a job with Robert Kennedy. Yeah, it was one of those really accidental things. I um, I was up for a Supreme Court clerkship, which I would have been idiotic enough to take because of the prestige, even though it would have turned my life into a very different place. But I was also, um, uh, I, I learned about this post in Kennedy's office, and by some quirk, the law professor I was taking a course in was best friends with one of Bobby Kennedy's uh, top aides, and he gave me a, you know, a, a nice shout out, and I wound up in, on the guy's Senate staff. In probably yeah. the most eventful time, you, this was 1967. Right. Uh, so Bobby Kennedy had been in the Senate for a couple of years. Yeah. He had now emerged as a force in the anti-war faction. He had turned against the war. Uh, he hadn't yet declared that he was going to run for president. That was the tension that was there from, the, from I mean, obviously preceding me, but I mean, that, that was the constant thrum for months. Is he going to go and again? And, and it was really interesting. I learned um, a part about the, the, uh, the, the political world that I think really somebody like a Shakespeare would have been much better at. So here's the tension. The, the the mutual contempt to quote the title of a very somebody good book. like a Shakespeare. How many Shakespeare's are there? I mean, a, oh, do you know Murray Shakespeare? <laughs> he, uh, he, From the Bronx. Yeah, he, right. He works on Real, Housewives, Real Housewives of Stratford. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Um, so here you have Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, for whom mutual contempt is the reality, and you also okay, have, from the days when Kennedy was the attorney general when he was his brother's campaign manager. Before, in the Senate. They hated each other on sight. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just did. Somebody said, you ever seen two cats in a room and they immediately, the fur goes up? It was something visceral. Each of them despised the other. Um, so one of the things on, on Kennedy's mind was that if I go out, if I take on Johnson, it's going to be seen as this personal um, battle. Uh, and you know all the all the Democrats were telling him, "You'll divide the party. We'll lose the Senate." Um, his, except for a guy like Adam Walensky, who was Robert Kennedy's young speechwriter, brilliant guy, and a couple of other people who were saying, "You know, you've got to do this." Uh, he was being advised by everybody from his senior, from Jack's senior advisors to the whole Democratic Party, "This can't be done. You cannot unseat a sitting president." But we should also say. Uh, for those who are not of a certain age, that uh, that these were unbelievably tumultuous times, uh, both in terms of resistance, growing resistance to the war, uh, the civil rights movement, and the backlash to the civil rights movement. Uh, and there was a sense that something was coming apart in America. Funny you use that phrase, because I knew a bunch of other young aides on Capitol Hill. And the one quote that all of us were using to distraction was, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood dim tide is everywhere, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is around. It's uh, you know, the second coming, Yates. Mm-hmm. So things were coming apart. You know, the generation gap was exploding. The, the, the civil rights movement was turning, in many ways, uh, much more militant, Rap Brown instead of Martin Luther King or whatever. Um, and a general feeling that, yeah, that, that the wheels were coming off. And one of the reasons why I think uh, um, the impulse for, of some people was to urge Robert Kennedy to get into the race was not just political, but let me put it this way. One of Kennedy's many 
problems with Lyndon Johnson was he felt he he was not strong enough to pull the country back. That there was a beneath this six foot four inch very powerful man was a weakness and an unwillingness to engage. I can remember him after one of the riots saying, I'll tell you why Lyndon Johnson isn't going into those neighborhoods, because he's a coward. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there were... <laughs> and Robert Kennedy um, was someone who rushed into those kinds of uh, situations. To a, Almost to a fault. I mean, all when he, on many foreign trips to Japan, to Latin America, to name two, would go out of his way to confront the most radical student protesters in that in those universities to argue with them about you know you don't understand my country and you know you and he he was you know he was he put himself in real physical danger and, sometimes and, well and he 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 also took on big physical challenges climbing mountains doing the kinds of huge you know the kinds of in, jumping into piranha infested waters in Brazil Richard Goodwin writes a lot about this in his um, the book, I think it's called Remembering America, a wonderful uh, account of the time. And Evan Thomas's very even-handed biography of, of Bobby makes the point of this almost reckless need. You know, he was the runt of the litter. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack was six feet plus, Teddy was six feet plus. Bobby on a good day may have been like five, eight, five, nine, kind of scrawny. Um, Evan Thomas thinks that's one of the reasons why he had this kind of... Uh, visceral identification with the underdog. Mm-hmm. Because even though he came from a wealthy and powerful family, he, in the context of that family, he was a little guy. So talk about, you You were there during this period when he made the decision, having kept out of the race, stayed out of the race. Eugene McCarthy comes along, right. the anti-war candidate, mm-hmm. and he captures the imagination of a lot of young people in mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and humbles Lyndon Johnson though he didn't beat him, uh, in the New Hampshire primary in the beginning of 2008. That was a... Uh, that 68. Was in those, uh, 68, I'm sorry. Those were in those quaint times when, uh, when you could announce uh, in the middle of a, an election year and it wouldn't be too late. No, uh, uh, not just him. Bobby Kennedy announced March 16th, and Nelson Rockefeller, who'd taken himself out of the race, announced about a month and a half later. Yeah. So what, uh, <laughs> what, what, was, what was going on inside the... Bobby Kennedy world uh, in that in the in the months and the days leading up to the decision to jump into a race. Into you do race. understand that I was not I at the center of the decision making as a yeah, twenty four year old. But as a junkie for that, right. you must have picked yeah. some stuff up through osmosis. I did. Um, by the time the end of sixty seven is coming, and Robert Kennedy has said at some point around then. Uh, uh, there are no foreseeable circumstances under which I, I would run, and I think so. It must have been the fall of '67 because that's when my, they, Allard Lowenstein, an activist of the time, very important uh, figure in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement with students, was banging on Bobby Kennedy's door figuratively and sometimes literally saying, "You got to run," and he asked George McGovern, and McGovern said, "No, I'm up for the Senate." In 68, I can't do that. So they found McCarthy, you know, a, a kind of strange vessel for this, very strange guy. But you're quite right. When he won in New Hampshire, um, the next day Robert Kennedy said, I'm reassessing, which understandably produced a great amount of resentment on the part of the people 
who said, look, McCarthy came when nobody else would. Now that he's proven that Johnson's vulnerable, now you're coming in. This is, this is where the ruthless t- tag that yeah. always stuck on Bobby Kennedy got reinforced. Um, and t- it was always a source of regret for him to the point where somewhere during the campaign, he actually found a bunch of McCarthy kids having around and he took them out to dinner and he just was talking with them. And he said, you know, I really, these should have been my kids. Um, so in that sense, he knew he blew it. But even at the very end, you know, Ted Kennedy, Ted Sorensen, most of the old hands were saying to him, you can't do this. It's not going to work. Uh, and if, you, if it works, what's, what, what are you going to be left with? You're going to run with a party half of whose people don't want you. You've got a sitting president of the United States still who's going to try to undermine you. Don't do it. But I think at the end, um, the combination of what McCarthy had shown and ambition uh, – and the feeling that the country was falling apart, you know, it sort of dragged him into the race. It was a, it was a clumsy, awkward entrance. Um, you know, the so-called well-oiled Kennedy machine wasn't quite that well-oiled. I mean, can you imagine you run for president on March 16th and, then the, you know, you, you're quite right. It's very late. Half the deadlines have passed. You can only run now in about five primaries. And in those days, unlike what you went through and, and your forebears and successors, the point about winning the primaries was not delegates. It was to show the people who actually made the decision, I'm the more popular candidate. It was to show the power brokers in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. Or Mayor Daley of Chicago. Or, yes, Mayor Daley of Chicago, who, as Bobby Kennedy said when he entered, that's the ballgame. Mm-hmm. If I can't get Daley, I can't. I can't. This, this won't work. And so I've got, to, I've got to prove by going to the primaries that I'm the strongest candidate. And we can talk later about what that would have portended had Los Angeles and Sirhan Sirhan not happened. You've written books on these kinds of subjects. but I have indeed. But the um, talk about the—you say it was a clumsy entrance, but it was an unbelievably electric campaign. And you were on the campaign. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that, that's where the, the, these, why these memories are so indelible. So, you know, I've never been on a campaign. You know, I've watched them on television, right? And I'm— wet behind the ears and suddenly it's like whatever the date is two three two or three days later and we're on a american airlines jet bound for california and we land in california and like there's thousands of people because because his entry did unleash this enormous energy all the frustration people said we got to get this guy johnson out mccarthy significant as he was, did, did not have quite that... And McCarthy energy. wasn't a connecting personality. No. McCarthy was a strangely detached personality to be leading a movement of people. Yeah. Detached is a kind word. He was almost almost contemptuous of his followers, and that came out later. So, you know, we are, we are barreling through neighborhoods in California. You know, he's halfway being pulled out of his car. The one security guy's got his arms wrapped around him. The de facto campaign manager, Fred Dutton's got his arms wrapped around the other leg. There is this This, this goes back to that, also to that impulse that you speak of, that he thrived on or somehow was drawn to this notion of getting, throwing himself into yeah. these situations that were, were sometimes dangerous. Even to the point where he would say in the morning, you know, you're booking me in too many colleges. You're booking me in too many ghettos. I've got to get to middle America. And then he'd say, where are the colleges? Where are the black neighborhoods? Um, but yes. And, and, the, and, and, and the black neighborhoods in that era were literally on fire. Yes. 
Um, and in the middle of all this, there's, there's what I later learned and what you no doubt have discovered is that campaigns, even no drama campaigns, tend to have their rivalries. There are people who want the candidate to say X, and there are right. people who want the candidate to say Y. Mm-hmm. And this this is not a campaign which had months and months to work any of this out. It was as it was going on. So, you know, Adam Walensky and, and I as his younger assistant assistant, you know, we were the bomb throwers. And then there were the sober sides who were, you know, who were... People who were more, uh, came from his uh, brother's world. Yeah. and Older, were more, more seasoned political And people. more traditional. So that... And, you know, we, because Bobby Kennedy was a really complicated guy in terms of his politics, it's one of the things I was drawn to, having grown up believing he was this McCarthy, ruthless guy who liked to chase Jews home from school. Joseph McCarthy, you're yes, talking Joseph, about. Sorry, now. Joseph McCarthy. Because Bobby Kennedy worked for him. Briefly, yes. And then, but anyway, um, but there were compl- he had a complicated, even particularly in 68, notion about what he thought. Like, he was tough on crime because he thought crime principally afflicted uh, the poor, blacks, browns, people who couldn't live in gated communities. But to the kinds of people who read editorials for the New York Times, that was, quote, turning to the right. He also had uh, real concerns about welfare. He hated welfare. He, the first day I worked for him, he, I tagged along at a um, Senate committee hearing about um, federal aid to education, which was only two years old at the time. And he was really berating the head of the Office of Education. It hadn't been a cabinet department then. And he wanted to know why after this do the IQ kids, this is a big thing with him, why do the IQs of black kids drop between the third and sixth grade? What's happening with the money? And then he said, you know, when I go into the ghetto, the two things people hate most are the public education system and the public welfare system. And he did think welfare was, uh, uh, you know, corrosive. Was corrosive, encouraged dependency, created resentment among among the people who were paying for it. He basically, what attracted me to him from the beginning was a speech he gave right after he got to the Senate. He said, "I'm paraphrasing about poor about black men." He said, "We might have given them they they have asked for meaningful work, and we have given them a check and said there's nothing meaningful for them to do." It's 1965, so he was also. Um, to some extent, not at war with, but in conflict with some of the yeah. or, of the orthodoxies of conventional liberalism. But his willingness to take that on also authenticated him as someone who was uh, who who was willing to 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 take on some tough and not give the obvious answer. And I I've, I've talked about this, I guess, to distraction. But what really hit me during that campaign and something that. Maybe it's happened since. So in the middle of the war, and the big issue is draft deferments for college kids. Yeah. Okay. And, and he would provoke this, by the way. He said, do you want to know how I feel about draft deferments for college kids? I'm against them. So this room full of college kids would boo. And he'd say, well, wait a second. This is the generation that claims it's for justice, right? And he said, you're in college because your parents have had, had the money or they've had the training to do this. He said, who do you think is going to that war in your place? You know, this black kid from, from South Los Angeles, this, this Latino from the Barrier, this poor white kid from Appalachia, they're doing the fighting because you don't have to. And, and this is a line that to this day I can't believe he said. He said, you know, when my oldest kid is ready for college, he's getting in. You know why? Because his father's a wealthy and powerful man. And at that point, you know, I remember staying in the back of wherever the hell this <laughs> was. 
oh, I guess this is how politics is done, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what you're supposed to do. Well, yeah. it doesn't happen that often. Right. No, that, that, that quality, that willingness to challenge conventional thinking and to take those kinds of risks, that, that's, that truth-telling is something that people hunger for. I could talk all day, Jeff Greenfield, about the Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, 1968. It was a formative thing in my life, but I also think he was one of the most intriguing uh, political figures of, uh, of the last half century. But um, there are two events I want to talk to you about. Uh, one was the night that Martin Luther King was killed, April 4th, 1968. You were in Indianapolis, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And um, Bobby Kennedy, against the advice of his security and many others, went into the inner city of Indianapolis and actually announced the, the horrible news that Martin Luther King had been killed and gave an extemporaneous speech that will live forever uh, as part of that history, a powerful speech. You were there. Uh, I was, uh, you were at back at the hotel. Right. But talk about that. So um, having seen the film of, of what is, I actually can talk about what happened and what happened after. Uh, you're exactly right. This crowd had been waiting for Bobby Kennedy for a couple of hours and had no, you know, in, in, no, they're not being smartphones and stuff back then. They didn't know. And he had to get up and said, I have sad news for all of us who love America. Martin Luther King was shot and killed. And then he, he began talking in ways that I don't think he'd ever done before. One of the things he did was to make reference to his own brother's assassination. For those of you who are tempted to hate, you know, I, can, I can understand that. My brother was killed, but he was killed by a white man. It's an odd way to, to mm -hmm. put it. Um, and then... You know, he was, this is not myth, he was, after his brother's death, he got deeply immersed in Greek tragedy for reasons that might be interesting to talk about. And so he quoted, remember, this is an inner city crowd. Aeschylus. And he quotes from Aeschylus. You know, my favorite poet was Aeschylus, and it's, even in our grief, pain we cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until by the... Comes by wisdom the, through by the, by the awful, awful grace, grace of, of God. God. And so please go home and say a prayer for your country. And then... Uh, he came back to the hotel, and, and we were all working on a speech. Sorens, Ted Sorensen by phone and Adam Walensky for, and, and myself for a Ted speech Sorensen, in Cleveland. Ted the great speechwriter for JFK. And he said that Martin, he, he, he couldn't even get the name right. He said, that fellow Oswald, Lee Oswald, he set something loose in this country. Um, and I don't ever remember him referring to that event, except for that night. Um, and the next day, you know, he gave a more formal speech about, about violence. Um, the irony is, I think he said, what has violence ever accomplished? And actually, the answer is, sometimes it changes history. Right, which takes us to, we should point out before we move on that Indianapolis was one of the few places that didn't erupt in violence on that night. Uh, yeah. And a lot, uh, most people attribute that to Robert Kennedy's appearance that night and his plea to the crowd to go home. Uh, and uh, so he, he had an impact on, on that night. Uh, but in terms of an assassin's bullet changing the course of history, two months later, you're mm -hmm. at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, describe those events. 
Um, having lost the Oregon primary the week before, the first primary, first to election, yeah, to Gene McCarthy, uh, the first, I think, contest uh, any Kennedy had ever lost. Uh, he knew that if he didn't win California, he, w- he said he'd withdraw. Uh, and he won a narrow victory in California. But because California back then had a winner-take-all rule, it meant a, a slew of delegates. Uh, and supposedly, if you believe um, a book uh, uh, about that last campaign, supposedly Mayor Daley had said to a Robert Kennedy ally here in Chicago who worked for the university but was Kennedy's guy, if he wins California, it'll be all right. So the implication there was Daley might go with him. On the other hand, I'm speaking politically, in the, the four huge states, there was no primary. There was going to be one more primary in New York, which would have been bloody, but he, he had to win it. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, New Jersey, all with delegates that had been picked months before, and in two of those states, solidly for Humphrey. And so the notion was he was going to have Hubert to— Hubert Humphrey, the vice president sorry, who got he, in the, the race— Hubert Humphrey did After not— After Johnson withdrew. Hubert Humphrey—sorry. I keep—you're quite right. We need to do this. Hubert Humphrey got into the race, the full backing of the AFL-CIO, the full backing of most of the Democratic establishment, all of the South. He replaced Johnson as the establishment right. candidate. And didn't run in any primaries because he didn't have to then. The right. delegates had already been picked. So the notion was uh, one of the last things Robert Kennedy ever said was, I'm going to chase Hubert's ass all over this country. He was going to campaign in these big states, you know, try to hold— Sort of similar to today, isn't it? Huge rallies, and try to demonstrate that he was the actual choice of the Democratic Party, and argue Hubert can't beat Nixon, I can. And you know, this is one of those horrible events that tell you how much history turns on a dime. He'd given; he was exhausted. He'd passed out uh, at a speech the night before. He'd Dick Crudwin described seeing him that day at a friend's house, sleeping, thinking that he might have. He might be really sick or even dead. So to spare him from a second rally, um, it was decided at the very last minute to take him to a press conference through the kitchen. After he made his speech, his uh, accepting the victory in Los Angeles, where he famously said, now on to Chicago and let's let's win there. He began by congratulating Don Drysdale on setting a record for consecutive scoreless innings and, you know. And his, he had one security guy, a former FBI guy, who because of that last-minute decision was trailing him by several feet. And so he walked into the kitchen, you know, with nobody but the maitre d', and Sirhan was there. And you were upstairs. Yeah. There was, everybody's getting ready for a victory party. We had kind of 60s, you know, kind of weird clothes. We were going to go to a hot <laughs> place. I know. We were, I had a narrow jacket, literally. Uh, we were going to go to a hot uh, place called The Factory, uh, a disco, I think it was. Um, and, you know, the, we started seeing what was going on on television. And um, this is going to sound, <clears throat> I suppose, um, I don't know what the word is, callous. I can't say everybody was surprised, shocked, horrified, because, the, the, as you say, there was such a sense of violence in the air. And such a sense, and pe- many people said, there, whoever they are, they're not going to let them live to do this. I don't share conspiracy theories, but there is that kind of... Thurston th- Clark wrote a great book about that campaign, that and, he, and, he, and the whole book was suffused with this sense of doom. And there was a suggestion that Bobby Kennedy felt that, and that he 
he had this fatalistic sense that somehow there was someone out there lurking for him. Do you, do you buy that? He did supposedly say, not to me, there are guns between me and the White House. Um, but you've got to understand, I think, that uh, I did another book about John Kennedy's death. And the day that John Kennedy was assassinated, he looked out the window at his hotel in Texas and said, you know, if there's somebody on a roof with a rifle, there's nothing we can do about that. Um, yeah, I do think it was fatalistic. And talk about you. You were 25 years old. 24. 25. Sorry. And, uh, and, you, uh, and you were on this incredible ride with this very charismatic guy in these charged, charged times. And all of a sudden, it was over. Yeah. Uh, how did you process that? I just remember going back to New York. I had just been married. Like my wife was on the campaign trail with me. It was a kind of a honeymoon. Um, and, and I think what I remember is simply numbness. Um, I don't remember an emotional reaction, except, of course, that was the emotional reaction, that uh, because violence was so much in the air back then, it was almost like saying, oh, I see the way this. I see the way this ends. You know, I, I get it. This is this is the ending. It was not a strong explosion of grief, more than it was, you know, a deadening of it. I don't want to. Uh, I I don't want to do um, little justice to your very very illustrious career. Um, but I want to compress it a little bit here and just summarize it and say that you went to work for John Lindsay, who was another very charismatic figure at that time, the mayor of New York. Uh, after that, you became a political consultant, but you found your way uh, into journalism and became one of the preeminent broadcast journalists in the country uh, covering politics. Well, yeah, we, apparently I passed you on the way. Right. You went from journalism to consulting. Yes. And I went from consulting to journalism. Yes, exactly. So. Uh, I concluded I wasn't going to be Jeff Greenfield. I'm so sure I that's what it was. Yeah, I, I, so uh, the, um, the, I want to ask you, because I want to get to today. Yeah. Um, tell me about how different uh, covering polit- the coverage of politics is today, and uh, maybe in part as a result of that, how different politics is today. Well, let's just take one example. That, that This is when I was still a consultant. But I think it's emblematic. So it's the, the, the Watergate breaks out, right? 1973, John Dean, the former White House counsel, starts copying to what was going on. And it is the dominant news story. Right? Hearings on television all day. So after the evening news. We, I guess we should say, again, in the interest yeah. of, I don't know who may be downloading this, that uh, there was a break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters uh, in Washington in 1972, right. And then as the story started unfolding and the investigation unfolded, in part uh, led by journalists, uh, uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein at the Washington Post, the trail led right to the the President of the United States. Closer and closer to the committee yeah. to reelect the President, important White House aides, and then the question began bubbling up in the in the uh, classic phrase of former Senator Howard Baker, what did the president know and when did he know it? Right. Okay, but here's my point. So the evening news ends at, in those days on the east and west coast at 7.30. The next piece of news you got about Watergate was when the morning paper hit the doorstep. 
No cable, no McNeil-Lera report. No internet. No internet, God knows. So think about that in terms of the pace of how information gets out. Um, in, uh, here's another example that I think illustrates it. It's 1976 in the second presidential debate between Ford and Jimmy Carter. Uh, Ford declares that there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe and never will be in a Ford administration. And his inquisitor, Max Frankel of the Times, after he gets up from the floor, says, you didn't really mean to say that, did you? And basically Ford says, yeah, I did. Now, it took two days for the impact of Ford's statement, or gaffe, to become clear, because it took that long for the next, you know, there there weren't panels of analysts instantly looking at the debate. There was analysis, but there were not endless tweets. Oh, look at what that moron said. Mm-hmm. So, so two days later, the first... Or, inst- or interest groups uh, immediately and right. political... So it took two days before the Ford campaign went, oh boy, we better do something about this. Um, now, you know, Peter Hamby, the former CNN uh, producer who now is the political director of Snapchat, who wrote a wonderful book about, or, or did a wonderful study of the impact of Twitter on the 2012 campaign, notes that 45 minutes into the first Obama-Romney debate, um, Ben Smith of BuzzFeed declares Romney wins first debate. So if your guy in the second 45 minutes had done the greatest job in the history of debating, it w- that, that... And we, we realized that inside the room, we realized that just 10, 15 minutes into it, we, we saw what the chatter was on social media and we could foretell what the coverage yeah. was going to be. So when you ask the difference, the, the, the speed of reaction to politics um, has you know, increased just geometrically. And one of the things that I have often wondered, although this campaign with Mr. Donald Trump may, may prove I'm wrong, is is it possible in this day and age to for a campaign for a candidate to kind of pull back and not respond instantly and the theme, theme is you got to respond instantly or you you know you're doomed um, the last political figure I can think of who and for obvious reasons I think who had a different approach to this as the as the rhythm was changing was Reagan you know because I think Reagan would say you yeah, remind me kind of an, of a bear who was kind of half asleep and you know when the Occasionally, would sort of swat the <laughs> press away, and because it didn't, it didn't seem to get to him or his people. But I do think that that's imposed on campaigns. Um, but we're talking. You can, you can tell me. We're talking thirty-six years ago. So what what does that do to reporters who are covering the race? You you were you were kind of an essayist in politics. You you kind of hung back and you observed what was happening and you tried to draw historical parallels and so on. How much room is there for that kind of reporting today? Well, I think you could tell me. Since uh, It was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I mean, you're there. You're, you're in the mix of this, uh, yeah. uh, how CNN covers it. Um, I'm always reluctant, you know, I really do think it's not good to say, well, you know, in my day, the tomatoes were really fresh, right? <laughs> you know, Atlantic City movie where... Guy says how great the ocean is, and Burt Lancaster says, you've just seen it in the old days. So, I mean, it's a real line, and it, it informs a lot of what I think. But having said that, uh, at least on television, uh, I don't see a heck of a lot of reflectiveness. You know, I see, I see armies of commentators and analysts and, quote, strategists, some of whom I think uh, 
I have to share this with you. I think sometimes when they call somebody a strategist, it's like I'm a baseball strategist because I sit in my hotel room and I yell at Joe Girardi, get him out. He's a bum. That's me. So that's how I'm a baseball strategist. Well, there's a lot of time to fill. But my point is I think, I, I think that the pace of, of the coverage, the demand for now, now we've got to tell you what's going on this instant. Um, I don't see a lot of what I love doing, which is not you know running around on on campaign planes. Where even back as early as like '88, I remember thinking I'm not learning anything being here. Right. Nothing. This is a this is to coin the phrase a bubble. It, I'll right. I'll go somewhere else. And that was really the tradition in American political journalism, which was the great political reporters would go and spend a week in a state driving around talking to people uh, not reliant on polls but doing their own sounding of where races are. News organization, not only does the time frame of reporting not allow that now, but the budgets of news organizations have become much more constrained. It is so much cheaper to put on a talking head than to send me out with a producer and a camera crew. I mean, I'll give you one example. You know, we all we all treasure what we did, right? Because it's that's what journalists right. are. Right, it's when the ocean was gray. So it's mm-hmm. 1992, and I go up to New Hampshire with a crew, and we don't go near... Uh, Pat Buchanan, the, the conservative commentator, is running in the Republican primary against incumbent President George Herbert Walker Bush. And I go to the biggest mall in Manchester, and what do I see? The, the department store that's been there for, I don't know, for 100 years is closed. The only things open in this mall are the unemployment office and the welfare office. And I turn to my producer and I say, you know what? I think Bush is going to be in trouble here. Um, th- but, they, but Nightline, God bless its former soul under Ted Koppel, you know, had the money, had the resources to say, all right, you know, you're going to go, you're going to spend a few days in New Hampshire, see what you can find, and maybe we'll get a piece out of it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, did I have to file six times a day? Did I have? That's exactly the point. Did I have to file for the web? Did I have to tweet? Did I have to? I don't know what shoot video. No, I had the luxury, thanks to the business model back then, of saying, "Oh, take your time and see what you can find." And there were, you know, I. What what confuses me a little is, particularly in this campaign, which I confess to have been, you know, gobsmacked by any number of times, is um, you, you and everyone else. <laughs> maybe maybe there's something that is so different now that all the reflectiveness in the world isn't going to isn't going to get you very far. I mean, maybe something has happened to the way that the process works now, and I'm I throw this out as a possibility that that the assumptions that people like me took into this business. Uh, have been overtaken by events, you know. I mean, I got I got Trump semi right last August, but that was only after assuming on three different occasions he was finished. You know. Do you? How much do you think uh, uh, the voracious appetite uh, appetite of the media has contributed to Trump's rise? We we I had a conversation the other day here uh, with uh, Katie Couric. Um, and Katie said that she thought that uh, that the media was to some degree uh, an enabler, the media because uh, they they filled a lot of time with Trump rallies that went on sometimes for an hour and so on. That that part I think is an, is a valid rap. When you put a candidate on for an hour unfiltered, you might as well be state television in Havana putting on a speech by Fidel. 
Um, to that extent, Although you couldn't get a Fidel speech in an hour, but that's a different enough. question. Yes, maybe he would talk fast, and I don't know. <laughs> uh, and I also think it's a very mixed bag on how Trump was treated in in beyond that. I think the decision of the networks to let him phone it in, literally phone it in, because that meant ratings, was a was a gift to him. Let him campaign on, strictly on his terms. Up. I think some of the interviews that I saw were embarrassing, and some of them were very good and very tough. And that's one thing about this notion that he got $1.9 billion in free advertising. Not all of it was positive. I mean, in the in the first few weeks, you know, a lot of the coverage particularly was, you know, look at what he's saying. Can he survive this? And much to the surprise of many of us, me included, um, the bug turned out to be a feature. Um, you know, he was connecting in a way that that would have destroyed certainly politicians in the past. I was thinking back of all the the political people undone by an errant turn of phrase uh, over the years. Cabinet members who told uh, vulgar, obscene jokes, you're fired. You know, even even uh, George Allen, one word, right? Makaka, Senator from Virginia. Senator from Virginia who was going to run for president in 2008 said for a big re-election, there's a guy with a cell phone or a Hi8 camera fault tracking him, Alan points at him and calls him Makaka, which was a, a term of derision for uh, dark-skinned Northern Africans that he obviously learned from his mother. That was it. He lost the campaign by a margin, and, and, and that was that. And here's Trump, who says things again and again and again and was called out on them. I mean, we should not assume that the media let him off right. the hook on them. It just... Let me ask you a question you know. about this. We talked a little bit earlier in a different context about Robert Kennedy taking on shibboleths of the of the uh, Democratic liberal establishment huh. and so on, um, and profiting from it in the sense that people uh, uh, thought that it was gutsy, it was courageous, he was willing to say things that were politically incorrect. Uh, I don't mean to draw a parallel between Kennedy and Trump, but do you think that Trump in some way is benefiting from that same hunger for, you know, I, I, I don't want to certify the rectitude of his positions. You know, president said the other day that, uh, that ignorance is not a virtue. And on some of these, some of these are just not based in fact, but it seems to resonate with at least some voters because it seems like he's willing to say what other people aren't willing to say. In fact, that, that, particular turn of phrase has been used by any number of, of Trump supporters in explaining to people in so, precisely those terms. He says what I can't. Mm -hmm. And I think that has two meanings. One is, um, you know, I can't talk back to my boss. Uh, I can't share all my opinions with my friends. Uh, but by God, this guy's got the, the, the money and the cojones to do it. The uglier part about that is, you know, when that term political correctness uh, has been distorted. I mean, it's one thing if you go on a university and there's a student protest against Kung Pao chicken because it's cultural misappropriation. That, to me, it comes under, you know, give me a break. But if the political correctness is you're not supposed to call, you know, immigrants racists or embrace white nationalist uh, notions, um, that's not political correctness. That's like simple civility. And I know what you're getting at, that Trump has, has hit a responsive chord that, that resonates in a whole lot of ways. These may be people who feel the political establishment has left them behind. Uh, I certainly think he resonates with people who see uh, the elites as, a, as condescending, 
not playing by the rules. You know, we live in a certain way. Right. We will, we will impose. And who feel disdained by elites. Absolutely. And, you know. So when the elites disdain him, that only strengthens their identification with him. They love him, they love him for the enemies he has made. It was said of FDR. And in a, in a very different way, it could be said about Trump supporters. Let's talk about uh, his opponent. Uh, and I, I th you know, there's still some length left in the Democratic race for president, but it seems pretty likely that Hillary Clinton's going to be uh, the nominee. Uh, you wrote about her some months back, uh, and uh, you wrote a piece called What's Wrong uh, with Hillary, um, and you said when you look at the position she's taken on some of the most significant public policy questions of her time, you cannot escape noticing one key pattern. She's always embrace the politically popular stand. Indeed, she has gone out of her way to reinforce that stand, and she has shifted her ground in a way that perfectly correlates with the shifts in public opinion. Uh, you speak about Iraq and, and so on. Um, does that make her vulnerable uh, to the uh, sort of the opposite of the Trump thing, which is um, instead of saying things that seem politically incorrect, that she seems to say things that... Uh, are designed to capture the the uh, majoritarian position of the moment. I would go further. I think of, if you imagine any of the conceivable Democrats who might have run this year, and I'm putting Bernie Sanders aside, only because I do think that the a 74 year old socialist, you know, is uniquely vulnerable to certain kinds of attacks. But this so put, from a guy who grew up on the west side of New York City. My so. parents were FDR liberals. <laughs> I'm, and, you know, my mother taught Conservatives me, in the neighborhood, huh? Right-wingers. My, <laughs> my mother schooled me on what it was like during the Nazi-Soviet pact, listening to the communists trying to rationalize <laughs> that one. So I was... In, I, was I thought Hiss was guilty from the beginning. <laughs> but the point about, about this is that of all of the democratic possibilities, you know, that might have run... I think she's uniquely vulnerable to Trump because she symbolizes everything that he is telling people are wrong. And anything that she throws at him, uh, you're not, you don't know anything. Oh, well, you knew everything. That's why, that's why you voted for the war in Iraq and screwed up the Russia reset and, and Syria. Uh, well, you're, uh, you're corrupt. Really? How much money have I taken from Goldman Sachs to give speeches? I think and I think that the, the the change of positions. It's not just that she changed positions. Everybody does that. I mean, well, Trump, Trump most of all, by the hour, some, right? But for instance, I mean, yes, many Democrats voted for the war in Iraq. She is perhaps the only one who made an allegation that Saddam Hussein was somehow involved with Al Qaeda and 9/11. Took that step. Um, a lot of people. Everybody changed their mind about gay marriage. Almost everybody. But you look at what she said about that when she was um, on the other side, and she talked about one man, one woman marriage as, a, as like a building block, a foundation block of Western civilization. Now, you know, when, when you commit yourself that strongly to position A, then a couple of years later, as the shift in the wind goes on, you're in position not A, um, it gets harder. Do you remember what happened when Terry Gross of Fresh Air just started pushing mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton on? So was this a political... On thing? gay marriage. On gay marriage. She got really defensive and testy. Um, and I, the irony here is, look, on, on traditional grounds, you know, who knows more? Who's versed in public policy? Well, I wanted to ask you about this because it seems to me, you know, my 
sense of this is that ultimately this thing can turn on temperament and experience that that at the end of the day people may even people who like what Donald Trump is saying may get to the point uh, just to the the edge and say but this is president of the United States and actually you can't just shoot your mouth off and say whatever you want you do have to know something and uh, and Hillary Clinton is a is a plainly experienced, competent, thoughtful uh, person. All true. And if you, were, if you gave me a certain amount of disposable income and asked me how to bet it, um, yeah, I would bet it on Hillary, but I would say if the odds were right, I would want to have some back because I understand that what we've seen is a plurality of the Republican Party voting, not the 130 Trump million. Trump has 11 million votes. Okay. 135 million people voted in the last election. All true, but I don't think that's the full answer to the question. Um, you know, I, uh, I think I've told you this. I wrote, this is the piece that I wrote months ago when I started rethinking this. I think there's a period in every so often in American political life, not frequently, when, when particularly aggrieved voters learn they can do something they didn't know they could do that becomes a hugely powerful force. The removal of Gray Davis in California, the recall in 2003 and his replacement with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Over a hundred years, I don't think there's ever been a successful recall in California until an ambitious congressman with a lot of money who wanted to be governor threw a bunch of money into the recall effort. And suddenly voters said, oh, wait, we can get this guy out six months after we reelected him and we can put in pretty much anybody we want? Now, that to me is beyond any particular policy issue or is there going to be a terrorist attack yeah. or that's the wild card that's the black swan for me that i'm not saying i don't do predictions i don't know how to do predictions but that's the part of it that makes me wonder just how how black swanny november is going to yeah. turn out to be there there's the other element of this is the demographics of the country and can you alienate major elements of the of the electorate, Hispanic voters, for example, and get elected president, the postulate going in by the Republican Party was no, mm -hmm. and that they had to fix that. Plainly, that proposition is going to be tested. But let me just finish by asking you this, and I should have asked you at the end of the RFK discussion. And I'm obsessed by him. I admit it. Uh, so, but, but I'm obsessed by him for a reason. So I want to ask you this question because you've written about this. How different would the world be today had Robert Kennedy not been shot and had he been the candidate against Richard Nixon in 1968? I think, I think it would have been tough for him to have won the nomination. I think beating Richard Nixon with a, with a Democratic president who would have done everything he could to undermine Robert Kennedy would have been dicey. But I do think this. Had he won and quickly moved to resolve the Vietnam War, um, the rest of the 60s and early 70s, I think, would have been less dark. Uh, you know, you were in the middle of a cultural revolution, a sexual revolution. Black and white were at each other's throats in a lot of places. But I think, there would, I think that you would have had at least the chance to demonstrate that there was a way for government to move beyond the orthodox, liberal, and often ineffective solutions to something much different, kind of a combination of personal responsibility and, and public commitment. And I think we would have had a, a different country. Now, you know, what it would have been like 50 years down the line, couldn't tell you. Though I still, we still live with some of the vestiges of Watergate, for example, 
in the form of cynicism. Mm-hmm. And um, ah, good it's, a good, it's a good place to end, though, because as people start considering their choices, uh, one shouldn't submit to the notion that these elections don't make a difference because they do. Anyway, Jeff Greenfield, I could talk to you for, and I will, as soon as uh, we leave here. Uh, I'll have all my follow-ups, but uh, it's always great to chat with you. It's a pleasure, David. And thank you for being a fellow at the Institute of Politics. Well, I've got to tell you, this is, you know, not that you need the plug, but but hanging around this place, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic, if Gives for nothing you hope, else, that, you know, if we could turn the country over to about half a dozen of the kids I've met here, I'd be really happy. Yeah, that's that's the goal. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.